Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. Coming up in just a bit, we'll follow up on yesterday's Q&A with Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson. WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp does some fact-checking of Jackson's answers, and we'll take a few questions from listeners we weren't able to get to on yesterday's show. But first, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox has been under the microscope for the way her office handled the Jesse Smollett case. A special prosecutor has been brought in to look at the facts, and Fox says she'll cooperate fully with the investigation. While that plays out, Fox continues working on the promised criminal justice reforms that swept her into office. One of those tasks will be helping to expunge tens of thousands of records for low-level marijuana convictions when recreational pot becomes legal on January 1st. To make that happen, Fox has partnered with the nonprofit Code for America. She talks about how the process will work and the huge task ahead based on the numbers. Yeah, so when they were looking at passing the legalization law, we estimated that there are about 770,000 records that would fall under this. And those records would be assigned to about 314,000 people. And estimates are that Cook County has the lion's share of that, maybe about 70% of those. And so what's going to happen now is we're going to look for the statutory code uh, for the marijuana convictions. Code for America goes in looking at Illinois State Police data using that data, sees who's eligible, then generates uh, documentation that is presented to us to take to court to have those records expunged. And will people whose records have been expunged, will they be notified that this has happened? Yes. Uh, That is probably the most difficult part of all of this. Uh, The technology allows for us to do the process of identification and generating the paperwork the easiest. Once the record is vacated, we then send a notification from the clerk's office to the person whose record has been expunged. Now, for a lot of people, uh, that might be easy. Their last known address uh, is the same address. But for people who have moved around, uh, trying to make sure that we find ways to find them to let them know that this has happened. Uh, is one of the things that we're working on now. Talk about the kind of effect this expungement could have on someone's life. Yeah, I think one of the things that we often don't talk about are the collateral consequences of a conviction. What happens is the ability for you to get a job. You know, there's an, a box on applications that says, have you ever been convicted of a crime before? Uh, it doesn't matter how long ago it's been, it's it's on there. The ability to get financial aid if you're a student, the ability to get housing, public housing. And so having a conviction has long-term effects long beyond uh, the time of, of the order having been entered. And so what we're hoping that this does is allowing for people who have been held back because of these convictions, to get jobs, to get an education, to meaningfully contribute to our tax base. What about the cumulative effect of multiple convictions? Could it have any impact there? Absolutely. I think one of the things that has been talked about in the last couple of months as we've talked about legalization is the fact that once you get one conviction, 
the likelihood of you getting another conviction increases. And it's not so much that, you know, these are folks who are just determined to be bad. If you are now locked out of the system, if your ability to get a job in the regular economy is taken or diminished because of a previous conviction, most people will find ways to make money to provide for themselves or their families. And for some, that is often in the illegal drug economy. And for decades, marijuana. And so what you'll find is that folks make it that one conviction and then another and feel like there's no real consequence after that first one. And so what we hope to find with this legislation by peeling that back uh, is the opportunity for people to avoid future contact with the justice system. So again, the organization you're working with here is Code for America. Explain more about how that partnership works. Certainly. So Code for America is a non-for-profit out of San Francisco. And when we announced in January of this year, even before the legislation uh, was finalized in Illinois, that we were going to move to vacate convictions, largely because there were 10 other states who were already doing this. And it felt hypocritical for us to continue to punish people for something that we saw was going to be legal and people were going to to make money off of this um, while others are having long-term suffering. And so when we decided to do this, we looked and said, well, how are we going to do this? What is the capacity for us to do it on our own? And we found Code for America, who in California had been doing this work with the San Francisco uh, District Attorney's Office and now later later to Los Angeles. And so they are a tech company. Uh, they create software. They are mission-focused on you know justice and equity. And they've created software that allows them to go in, identify records, and expunge them. In California, I think they've done 67,000 of those expungements so far. Is there a possibility that there are people whose cases will not be captured by this technology? And if so, what are the next steps for them? I think we have to roll it out and start and see. I think the biggest uh, potential for that comes from the records that exist with the Illinois State Police. And so making sure that we have the most complete data set and that we, as we load the technology, that we are capturing all of the statutory codes that would encompass that. There's also always the possibility because this process is what we would call it automatic, where no one has to come in and petition. Um, I should also mention there's no fees that are accompanying this, that people can have their records expunged without having to proactively pay or come in to do that. But for others who feel like, hey, I, I, I don't know if my record is expunged or, hey, do you know about this? They are still able to petition for expungement in case they would fall through the crack. So while recreational marijuana will become legal starting January 1st, it will remain illegal to get caught with more than 30 grams of marijuana in Illinois. How will your office address those cases? We'll look at them on a case-by-case basis. I mean, it, it, it is illegal right now to possess even less than 30 grams of marijuana. And law enforcement can arrest you at this moment for possessing any amount of marijuana because it is still illegal. Our office has indicated that we're not prosecuting those cases so that we can focus our attention and our resources on violent crime. After the law takes into effect, we'll look at the facts and the evidence and weigh each case on a case-by-case basis. Well, as you mentioned, Code for America is 
based in San Francisco. Yes. And what did you learn from the way they worked with authorities there that we can apply here in Cook County? I think one of the best things that we learned is to get ahead of it before the law changes, right? So San Francisco or California, uh, by referendum, legalized marijuana. Illinois is the first state that has done this by the legislative procedure. And so we were able to do a lot of forecasting based on lessons learned in in San Francisco. So now you've got marijuana legalized. What are you going to do with all of these people? And then there was the back end trying to figure it out. So we learned um, from them, hey, let's in the legislation, let's sit at the table and talk about ways that we can make this more efficient. Let's remove delays for people to be able to get this done. Um, Let's figure out mechanisms for how we notify people that it's happening. You know, putting together a campaign starting now about educating people about what the law will mean coming up. And so I think we, we in Illinois have been the great beneficiaries of uh, the trailblazing work that has been done in other states. What type of resources is it going to take um, in terms of staffing and the time it will take up in the court system to actually expunge these records? Again, the benefit of Code for America is the heaviest lift is done by them. The identifying of the population who's eligible, the populating the forms, right? One of the most onerous parts about all of this is putting together the forms, the software that they have pre-populates or puts the template together and fills out all the information for us. So that information is then given to us. The the motions are prepared for us. We just have to go into court. So there will be, you know, human resources that we'll have to expend here in our office. Um, we certainly believe we have the capacity. We'll always ask for more uh, to help us do it more efficiently. But we're working with the clerk's office. We're working with the chief judge to see if we can identify times where we can go in and do these cases in bulk. Well, you've said you you want to right the wrongs of the past when it comes to marijuana arrests and, and the war on drugs. How big of a step is this towards righting some of those wrongs you've talked about? I think it's a huge step. I think we have to acknowledge what happened with the over-aggressive policing and prosecution of drug offenses in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. There are communities, particularly poor communities of color, that were decimated by that. Again, we talk about the conviction. Uh, That has generational effects. That has an effect if your ability to get a job and housing on the children in your family. And so being able to say, listen, we had the benefit of hindsight. This war was in no way making us safer. Our communities were not being safer. And in fact, it caused more harm to those communities. Repairing that harm, um, giving people the opportunity uh, to build from that is really monumental. It's not enough to say marijuana is legal and Godspeed to those 770,000 people who were unfortunate enough to have their convictions before January of 2020. That's not enough. We can't allow you know John Boehner to come in and now make millions and millions of dollars off marijuana sales while people in the neighborhood who were selling, you know, dime bags or $20 bags um, have their lives forever altered by that. And so I think it's our responsibility to make sure that we're righting those wrongs. Well, before we let you go, while we're still over a year out from the November 2020 election, at least one person has announced his plans to run against you for Cook County State's attorney. How are you preparing for that race? You know, preparing by doing what we do every day, uh, working on behalf of the people of Cook County. Again, I'm very proud of the record that we've established. I think what 
this announcement yesterday shows is the innovation and the thoughtfulness that we've put into public safety, that it's not just about making sure that we are dealing with the cases right now, but the past and the implications of that and a holistic approach. And so we're going to keep working. We're going to keep doing the things that we're doing. We're going to keep fighting on behalf of the people of Cook County. It's likely that your office's handling of the Jesse Smollett case will be an issue in the upcoming election. And you've said you plan to cooperate fully with the special prosecutor's investigation into that case. How confident are you in your handling and your office's handling of that matter? You know, I'm confident uh, in the work that I had done with that, but certainly Certainly, if there are things to learn, lessons to learn, uh, we'll take that. We'll do that. Uh, But I also like to remind folks that, you know, when I came into this office, I said we were going to focus our attention on violent crime. uh, And and our record demonstrates that. And, you know, the thousands of cases that our office handles every year, uh, the cases that we've handled since this conversation about this case began um, has included over a dozen first-degree murder cases, sexual assault cases. Uh, My assistants are handling some of the most horrible cases cases from babies being ripped from their mother's wombs every day on the front lines. And so I stand ready to answer for what happened with that case, but also stand ready to highlight the work that our office does every single day on the thousands of cases that we see. That's Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me back. Algebra in Lakeview looks different than Algebra in Little Village, and that's a problem. You should have access to the same set of standards. We shouldn't change the standards because of the skin color or the zip code of the children that we're serving. That's Chicago Public Schools CEO Janice Jackson answering a listener question yesterday on the morning shift. With the first day of school for CPS just days away and the school board meeting later this morning, we talked to Jackson about changes students, parents, and teachers will see this year, from funding to resources to money needed repairs. We want to make sure that we have first floor accessibility in all uh, of our facilities, which is a major lift, but I think it's a move in the right direction. So you will see those investments in many of our neighborhood schools. We got a lot of great questions from listeners on our hotline, but didn't have time to get to all of them with Janice Jackson. Fortunately, WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp is in the studio with me now to help bring you some answers. Hey, Sarah. Hi, how you doing? Doing well. So yesterday, Janice Jackson talked about a number of issues from investment into schools, the budget equity, and so on. What stood out to you? Well, one of the biggest things that stood out to me is that she said that when she came to the school district, she thought of her role as someone that was going to bring stability. And you have to remember, prior to her being appointed as CEO, we'd had a succession of several different um, CEOs. And that, that's, an, that's an interesting point that she makes, because going into the Chicago teachers union contract fight, you know, there's a strike looming, they're threatening a strike. And so she really wants to get this done. I mean, that's what that said to me is that she does not want a strike. She wants stability. And she wants to get this deal done. So that was kind of interesting to me. Well, Jackson said she thought the negotiations with CTU were going pretty well in recent weeks. Here's what she said. 
the uh, negotiations have been moving along um, nicely, more quickly in recent weeks, which I count as a good sign. I think we'll get a deal done. There's no reason if you look at what um, CPS is proposing and what the union is asking for, and more importantly, what the fact finder has um, identified as a fair middle ground. There's no reason why we can't get there. We just have to take into consideration what's being said. So you said she really wants to get this deal done. But what's your sense of how these negotiations are going? Well, even the union says that they're moving faster, that there has been some progress made. There was one really good sign to me was that um, Jesse Sharkey, the president of the teachers union, mentioned in a press conference this week that... Chicago Public Schools has put a proposal on the table around nurses. And I know she talked about nurses yesterday, that she that she does want to do something around nurses. Well, that is a good sign because there's a bunch of topics like staffing and class size and um, things like substitute coverage and substitute um, compensation that are not necessarily bargaining issues. CTU can't bargain over by law, but if the door is open by CPS, then they can start bargaining over them. And I do think that that the biggest hang-up is going to be that Chicago Teachers Union needs some wins on subjects like nursing, social workers, getting more people in schools, improving the conditions for students and teachers. I want to get to a couple of calls quickly from yesterday that we didn't get to with Janice Jackson. This is Ray from the Southwest Side. Hi, my name is Ray Salazar. I live on the southwest side, and I'm a longtime CPS teacher. My question for Dr. Jackson is, if CPS gives into CPU's demands for librarians, social workers, special ed, is there a pool of qualified candidates to fill all of those positions? And if not, what are the obstacles that need to be addressed for those positions to be filled? Sarah? So for sure, there is an issue with finding people for these positions, Um, especially when you talk about nurses and social workers. There's a nationwide shortage. And so that boils down to what happens in Chicago. However, from the union's perspective, there are things that Chicago public schools can do to be more proactive. One of the things is increased salary, um, you know, which is one of their demands, too. And the other thing is improve generally working conditions for social workers and nurses and clinicians because they do say that that as the school district has gone through years of budget cuts, the conditions in schools have gotten so poor that a social worker who might have an option in Chicago might say, well, I want to take a job somewhere else because it's just such a hard job in Chicago. And so maybe solving some of those working condition issues will will improve the number of people who want to apply to Chicago and, and come and work here. Uh, let's try to get to a couple of other questions quickly. Here's one a speci- around hiring, but specifically with regards to special education. Hi, my name is Christine, and I'm calling from Lakeview. This past spring, schools were allowed to make position appeals to staffing levels in their buildings. Many schools tried to appeal in May or June and were told they had to wait until July. Many appeals came in in July, and CPS and ODLSS did not respond to those appeals until August. Many schools are just now finding out whether or not they have positions approved to hire and add to the special education staffing in their buildings. Why did this delay happen? 
I think she asked a very good question, and I have the same question. I actually have a Freedom of Information Act request in to understand a little bit more about why this appeals process happened the way it happened. Because just yesterday I was looking at the employee roster, which lists all the employees that are expected in Chicago public schools. And what I noticed is that while there are many more special education teacher positions in that employee roster, 600 of them are vacant. So, you know, maybe they added the positions, but if you don't have people to actually fill them, then they're really pretty useless as it, as it comes to students getting the, the support that they need. Okay, well, well, let's wrap on what's happening later this morning. CPS's seven-member school board is holding its monthly meeting, and top of the agenda is discussing and voting on this proposed budget. Is this budget likely to be approved easily, or, or do Mayor Lightfoot and CEO Janice Jackson have some convincing to do? I think that they will ask a lot of questions, this, the board members. They've asked a lot of questions. You know, whether they would vote down the, the the budget, I don't think they would because, I mean, we're less than a week before the school year starts and we don't have a budget in place. And there's a lot of, you know, technical reasons why you need to have a budget in place as school starts especially. So I think that, that it will happen. But there's a lot of questions. There's a stuff that the mayor and Janice Jackson say are in the budget that are really pretty hard to find and maybe they aren't really in the budget and so I, I do think that the board members will ask those questions and press on that. That's WBEZ education reporter Sarah Carp. Sarah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating. It helps other people find us. Another great way to get in touch is by leaving us a voicemail. You can give us a call with any feedback you have. Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.